0: Thanks so much, Stephen. Please would you keep that passage open, Matthew chapter 12, page 977, if you're using one of the church Bibles. We're picking up on a series uh, that we began, I began in Matthew sometime last year, but it's still part of the same series. Let's pray. Father, please help us now as we come to your word that we might engage with it with our heads and with our hearts and with our lives, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Beneath the glittering surface of even the most sophisticated societies, there lurk some deep darknesses. Dark forces that have the capacity to destroy those societies, overwhelm them. There's a darkness of inhumanity. The capacity we display as human beings from time to time sometimes in the most extraordinary and disturbing ways the capacity to deny the sacredness of all human life at whatever stage and so some people are classed as being less than human worth less than others on the basis of their race or their sex or what they can contribute or their capacities in other ways. In some circumstances, some human beings are classed as worthless to be discarded. The darkness of our inhumanity, the darkness of our capacity to exercise moral inversion where we hold up what is evil and call it good and where we hold up the good and say that's evil and dangerous. And thirdly, the capacity that we have as human beings to exercise a kind of madness and call it wisdom, Cleverness, the dark force of our inhumanity, of our moral inversion, our capacity to do evil but think it good, and our ability to think we are wise when we commit folly. You don't have to look very far to find examples of those things in history and in our own contemporary world but here's the other thing to note as Solzhenitsyn famously said the line between good and evil does not lie out there it lies in the human heart this is to do with all of us and so I want to raise the question this morning how do we protect ourselves against being engulfed by these dark forces that are around and we have so much evidence for. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, Katrina and I were in Poland and we uh, were in Krakow. I went to Oskar Schindler's factory. Oskar Schindler, famous because he rescued a number of Jews by employing them in the factory. There's an amazing display there that catalogues the growing degradation of the Jewish population in particular, until they ended up in the ghetto and from there to the slave camps or to the extermination centers. How do we protect ourselves against the darkness? And here are three things That as human beings, we tend to put our trust in. Number one, religion and culture. Because religion is a version of culture. They're intertwined in all kinds of ways, as we'll see in a moment. Religion and culture will protect us. Number two, our moral values will protect us. And the third one is knowledge. We've acquired knowledge and learning, and the more learning we have, the more sophisticated we become, the safer we will be. I want to have a look at these things this morning, and to do that I want to go to the past and ask the question, how does the past help us to assess these dark forces and what causes them, what lies beneath, and how we might address them. Of course, when you start talking about the past, we have a problem, don't we? Because we find it really difficult to read the past. I've been reading a book by Myra Hamamash. Um, Hammamesh, sorry. It's called A River of Wild Dogs. She was brought up in In Poland, from a Jewish family, she managed to get away, but both her mother and her father perished in the Holocaust. Some 20 years after the end of the war, she went to Auschwitz, and she records how when she arrived there on a winter's day with the snow on the ground, she tried to imagine what it would have been like for that moment when her father got off the train, stepped over the dead bodies, and then was ushered to his death. And she says, I expected when I got to Auschwitz, there would be an emotional response. But she said, I couldn't feel it. I couldn't experience it. I closed my eyes and tried to imagine my father and tried to imagine the guards shouting to people that way or that way, to work or to death, and the barking of the dogs. But she said, I couldn't do it. I realized it's not possible. Because you see, the thing about the past is it acts operates in a kind of parallel to us. It's not us, is it? It's them. It's not now. It's then. And the problem with the past is that because of that distance that we cannot get over, the danger is we don't read the past well. And so we don't learn from it. And we say things like, well, we're not like them. This isn't us. That isn't us. This is us and we're different. And you know, we do that with the Bible. And that's the most serious thing of all. Because the Bible is the past, isn't it? Here in Matthew chapter 12, we're reading about incidents that don't resonate with us very easily. Walking through cornfields and rubbing your hands and people getting upset because you're doing it on a particular day has never been a problem in my experience at any level. And so we, we have a problem when we come to the Bible because it's the problem of the past. <laughs> we have other problems in the 21st century, of course, as well. <gasps> Technology is a great thing, but sometimes. The other thing about the Bible, of course, is it's a religious book. It's about spiritual things. It's about Jesus. And Jesus is different, isn't he? And so when we come to read the Bible, we end up with this extra layer. Not only is it the past, but this is a religious book, a spiritual text And for some of us that separates it even further from us so I want to begin by saying we need to read the past really carefully and especially we need to read scripture really carefully because it's about us do you notice who these people are who are attacking jesus who in verse 14 i think it is say at the end they want to kill him do you notice who they are well largely they're the scribes and the pharisees and in case you're not sure what that means let me tell you if you're concerned about having a cohesive society that functions with moral values that has a depth to it, that's law abiding and decent. You want people like the Pharisees and the scribes. Because they epitomize in so many ways a good citizen. They weren't the riffraff, they weren't the drunken mob, they weren't the Nazis, they weren't the criminal element in society. They were nice, decent, law-abiding, religious people. Think about it. Solzhenitsyn says that the line between good and evil is not out there, it's in here. And when we read about people like this, who can conspire to murder somebody, let alone Jesus Christ, you have to ask yourself some questions about the human heart, do you not? If we're going to read the past, well, especially the past of the Bible, we need to recognize that this is us. It is speaking to us. The other thing is I want you to notice what the issues are here. The first of those issues is the eating of corn. The disciples are walking through the field, they're perhaps a bit bored, a bit hungry, a bit peckish, there's no McDonald's along the road and so what do they do? They walk through a cornfield and they get some grains of corn and start to rub them. I think you've gotta be pretty desperate to do that kind of thing, frankly, but anyway, that's what they were doing. And the Pharisees, these sticklers, for decency and rule and the cultural norms and the religious regulations. They object and they say to Jesus, what on earth are you doing allowing your disciples to do that? We read something like that and we think that's nothing to do with us, don't we? Or take the healing of the man with the withered arm. It's a disfigured arm and Jesus heals him on the Sabbath And so we say, well, that that doesn't affect us. We don't have a problem with the Sabbath, and people being healed is great. Or the healing in verse 21 of the deeply disturbed man. And we think, what's that got to do with us? Or that demand for evidence that you find in verse 38. Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We read those things and there's the distance of the past. It's a different culture. There are different issues. And you see the problem? That was then. This is now. What's this got to do with us? And I want to tell you it's got everything to do with us. And it precisely has to do with those three dark forces with which we started. The dark force of our tendency to trivialize human life, and make out some life to be more important than others. The problem of moral inversion where we call evil good. And the madness of thinking we're wise because we know a lot, and we're clever, and we don't live in the 18th century anymore. And we have the iPhone. And we have technology. And we are so modern and so wise. But capable of the most desperate, desperate, destructive folly. Those issues that lie just beneath the surface in every society including ours are what we are seeing displayed in some measure here and then jesus exposes them for what they are first of all the trivializing of human life here's this incident in verse one the pharisees draw attention to the fact that these disciples that they are they're, they're breaking the sabbath What's the issue there? What's the issue? Here's the issue. What they practice is religion, but it's not worship. And there is a difference. Their religious observance, the keeping of the rules and the regulations, the ostentatious practice of their religion, the look how great I am, how good and noble and godly I am. What they practice is religion, and religion is an aspect of culture. It's not worship. You see, true religion isn't displayed largely and definitely not solely in the corporate acts or the individual acts of religious devotion it is not primarily measured by the vertical dimension because most of that us and god we cannot see what we can see is how we treat other people true worship as opposed to religion demonstrates itself in a passionate concern for others and especially those in need and those who are weak and those who are powerless. Notice Jesus' response to them. He responds by drawing attention to two things. One is the example of David and the priests in verse 3, and then he quotes from the Bible. He takes them back to one of the heroes of the Jewish history and faith. and He says, do you know, when it came to a concern for people And their need, as opposed to scrupulous observance of religious detail, David put people first. And the priests. You don't work on the Sabbath. Well, priests do. (laughs) How do you work that one out? And then he quotes from Hosea. Chapter 6 and verse 6. There it is in verse 7 where God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's the key thing. That's the thing that ultimately measures the difference between religion and worship. You can go to church every Sunday. You can read your Bible. You can pray. And they're all great things to do. They're important things to do. They are necessary things to do. You can have religious experiences till the cows come home And they can be profound and deep. And it's great to have them. And I encourage you to have them. But the measure. The measure is how we treat other people. And especially a concern for the weak. And the vulnerable. And the marginalized. And those who are considered to be dispensable. And those who lack power. By the way, do you notice their hypocrisy? They get very upset, verses 9 to 10, about the potential healing of a man on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath? You'd break the Sabbath? Even to heal, which is a good thing, but not on the Sabbath. Because the rules say you mustn't do any work on the Sabbath. So being a doctor on the Sabbath, a miraculous doctor is true. Jesus Christ Doing a healing on the Sabbath, you shouldn't do that. Do you notice how Jesus exposes their hypocrisy? He says, tell me, tell me, let's suppose your livelihood was jeopardized in some kind of way. So one of your animals got into a mess. So you are facing economic disaster or ruin or a loss of income, what would you do? And he says, I know what you'd do. It's what you do do. You say, there's a need. My livelihood is at stake, and so I'll go and rescue the sheep. you do that because you're concerned about your economic well-being, but you don't care about people. And so, in that scathing way, he says in verse 12, How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? That's a really, really important question, isn't it? How many people have been sacrificed for the sake of five-year economic plans? How many people have been sacrificed because of the bottom line? How many people have been wrecked in the pursuit of sales? but remember evil goes through the heart of all of us how many have we messed up because of our own concern about our own well-being whatever the cost it is to somebody else and notice where they end up here are these decent good people religious people verse 14 they went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus We need to stop there and pause. (laughs) These are good people. Decent people. Religious people. What's the problem? They've substituted religion for worship. And worship always displays itself in humility and a concern for the outsiders and the marginalized. Look at that. Quotation from Isaiah in verse 18. Here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory In his name, the nations will put their hope. And Matthew quotes that from Isaiah and says, this is Jesus. Unlike those religious people who draw attention to themselves, he's characterized by humility. He has a profound compassion for people. He's willing to risk his reputation for the sake of people. He's concerned, do you notice, about justice And he's concerned about the outsider. In him, the nations will put their trust. That means the outsider, reading it in a first century Jewish context, the nations are the Gentiles. They're the other. They're the unwashed and the unspeakable. Lesson. Religion is no protection at all against the descent into the darkness of inhumanity, none. And it's no protection for us as individuals as well. The answer to racism and indifference to people and the trashing of the image of God in human beings, of genocide and all of that darkness is not religion. It's worship. Secondly, here's the second problem. It's the problem of morality, not godliness. Verse 22. These people say that Jesus is dealing with this man who is deeply, deeply disturbed. He's described as demon-possessed. He's also blind and mute. They see him do that. And do you notice what their response is? They ask themselves the question, by what power does Jesus do this? Well, he does it by the power of evil. Here are people who pride themselves on their own moral rectitude and their ability to discern good from evil. And here they are, unable to distinguish They call Jesus evil. They have inverted goodness and evil. At the same time, they are self-justifying and hypocritical. Look at verse 34. How can you, says Jesus, who are evil, say anything good? They cover up their hypocrisy. A good tree brings out good fruit. A evil tree, a bad tree, brings bad fruit, says Jesus. Guess which you are. But that's not what you think, is it? You think you're good. You are in deep, deep trouble. This is a deep darkness. And they turn against the good because they reject Jesus. You know, at one level, it's okay to be against Jesus, to ask questions about him, to be confused, all those kinds of things, but if we are committed, committed to never allowing ourselves to see anything beyond what we see in Jesus, Jesus the healer, Jesus the teacher, then in the end, we are rejecting the voice of God himself. That's what Jesus means when he talks about speaking against the Holy Spirit in verse 32. Yeah, you can say all kinds of things about me, but there is a voice behind that and it's the voice of God himself. So if you think you're really clever and you're actually rejecting me, let me tell you, you are in deep trouble. You are morally corrupted. Here's the lesson. Morality is no protection against a descent into evil. It's not. Not for a society. Not for us as individuals. What matters is a change of heart. And we can't bring that about ourselves. Verse 35, a good person brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And where does that come from? It comes about from a change of heart, a change of disposition that God brings about. Morality will not save you. So the problem is religion instead of worship, morality instead of godliness. And the last one. It's 9.30, so I'm going to use the posh word. It's hubris as opposed to wisdom. Here are these people in verse 38, and they ask for a sign. And you say, how very innocent. Well, you need to read it carefully. It isn't innocent at all. What they are saying to Jesus is, you need to meet our level of, our criteria. Because we're wise and we're clever. Subtext. We are a lot better than the people were in the past. We'll come to that in a minute. We know more. We have changed so much. We are not like our ancestors, we are different. We have reached a level of wisdom and knowledge. And so you need to meet our criteria so we can assess you. that's a kind of madness, isn't it? That is a kind of madness. Which is what Jesus basically says. He says, um, you remember the Assyrians, verse 41, the people of Nineveh, they were Assyrians. Assyria had a really bad reputation as far as Israel was concerned because the Assyrians weren't nice to the people of Israel. Uh, They conquered them and they raped and pillaged and they shipped people off and they committed genocide and, and generally they were an unpleasant bunch of people. In fact, that's an understatement. They had a reputation for being ruthless but there's a story in the Old Testament about a man called Jonah, who's a prophet, and God says to him, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them if they don't repent, then I'm going to destroy them. In fact, he says, just go and tell them, that I'm going to destroy them. Now, Jonah doesn't want to go, I think, because he thinks that the people of Nineveh might actually listen to him, and he's, he, he wants to close every door. And in the end, he ends up being swallowed by a fish, and he kind of dies, really. But God won't leave him dead, and so... He brings him back and sends him off to Nineveh and Jonah goes clearly, reluctantly, and lo and behold, the people of Nineveh repent from the king downwards. (laughs) Jesus is saying, you are nothing like as wise as the Assyrians. They just had Jonah. You got me. They listened to Jonah. And you're not listening to me? And you think you're wise? That your knowledge gives you some kind of superiority? Or take the queen from the south. Verse 42, she'd heard about Solomon. So what did she do? She went on a long journey. She went to see Solomon because he's got a reputation for being wise. So she's a queen. She's a woman. She's not from Israel. And she's just going to Solomon. Smart guy, but he's not Jesus Christ somebody wiser than Solomon here and you think you're clever? Judging me? That's a kind of madness, isn't it? And Jesus tells this little story, which is very funny, actually. Have a look at it. It's in um, verse 43. I think this is meant to be an amusing story. It's a way of ridiculing them. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. this is you says jesus look that is how it will be with this wicked generation let me put it like this we have swept away the superstition of the past we have developed our technology we have our science we have our learning so we know better And we set ourselves up as the arbiters to judge God. To assess Him. That is a form of madness. And actually it's a deep, deep wickedness. It's not a small thing. I've said this before but I'm really pleased that I live in the 21st century and we have antibiotics and we live in a democracy of sorts and so I'm really pleased that I live in a society where we can vote out governments <laughs> I'm really pleased about the advances of knowledge I quite like my iPhone I like the fact that you can buy stuff and you can have a a device that enables you to play music in different rooms without wires. I like that, it's cool. I like computers. I like the way medicine has advanced. I love all those things. But here's the lesson, human knowledge is no guarantee against the madness. There are all kinds of things to be said about the First World War and its causes. It's complex. But does it ever strike you that the main nations involved in the First World War, which I think can only be described as a kind of collective madness, whatever the reasons, but you notice they're amongst the most educated, sophisticated, and Christian, Remember, religion won't save you. Nations on the planet. Knowledge, knowledge that exalts itself to some kind of level of universal truth. We make a divinity of it will not save you. What matters is true religion and that doesn't come from within or from Institutions of higher education, it comes from above. There is a profound folly, isn't there? Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah. There'll be no sign given except the sign of Jonah. There it is, verse 40. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What, what is the, the marker of true wisdom? It's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that looks remarkably stupid, <laughs> assessed from the world's point of view. Our wisdom is no protection. Our cleverness, you see the problem Is that it's knowledge rather than true wisdom so there we have it the problem of religion rather than worship of morality rather than godliness of exalting human knowledge rather than true wisdom so what do we need well we need worship not religion To what extent is your Christianity Christianity religion to what extent is it worship important question we need godliness and not morality to what extent is your lifestyle the values that you hold things that you have absorbed from the culture or from your upbringing to what extent is it morality rather than godliness. And to what extent are you trusting in human knowledge and clever people to tell you what to think rather than the wisdom that comes from God? Let me pull this together. You know, to a greater or lesser degree, if we are followers of Jesus, and therefore that means that we're concerned about worship, concerned about godliness and concerned about true wisdom that will lead us into situations where we feel like an outsider for example people will say how could you possibly think that how could you possibly do that with your life how could you possibly think that's good and that's not they may even go so far as to say that what you think and what you do is dangerous When we have followers of Jesus who are concerned with worship rather than religion, it may get us into trouble. It may actually get us in trouble with very religious people amongst others. When we're concerned about godliness rather than morality, we may get into trouble with those who claim to be the upholders of moral values. And when we're concerned about wisdom rather than knowledge, We may well be told that we're fools. What do we know? And so we will feel an outsider excluded. It can be really hard. Notice where the passage ends. Verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Somebody told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Your family's there. Look at what he says. Verse 49 and 48 who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. To followers of Jesus who are concerned about worship rather than religion, who are pursuing godliness rather than morality, who are seeking the wisdom that is above and seeking to live all of that up, Jesus says, you may be excluded there, but I want you to know that you're welcome here. I want to embrace you. You are my family. And if you're part of the family of Jesus, that trumps everything else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we ask that you continue to give us understanding and wisdom As we engage with it and see what that means for us as we live out our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.